Today, as we jump into the Word, I want to just kind of give you a preview as to what this morning looks like, because every one of us practice this almost every day. If you don't, maybe some of you should practice it more, but what I'm talking about is on this. Check this out. obsessed with being clean. I mean, so many of us start our day or end our day or even in the middle of our day, think about getting clean, whether it's with hand sanitizers or soaps or shampoos or colognes. I just want to give you a glimpse of just how crazy our culture is about being clean. Check this out. You got Lever 2000. You got Ivory. How about some zest? Tone. Lava. Isle. Ole, 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 ole. Irish Spring. Dove. Coast. Caress. Maybe you're a loofah user. And you know what? We go beyond just soap. We're even concerned about the scent they come with. You got passion flower. You got sweet pea violet. You even got yourself some Himalayan salt. Or how about a little oatmeal shea butter? Or crushed grape with a little shea butter. We're moving on to the alpha hydroxy fruit peel or deep sea extracts with ocean therapy. How about a little bit of black orchid while you're at it? And don't think for a moment this is a girl thing because guys, we've got a little Denali, we've got Fiji, we've got a little Anarchy. We've also got Apollo and Kilo with a little bit of Hawkeridge and After Hours with Swagger Wolf and Thorn with a little bit of Dark Temptation, but don't forget, cool. And if our soaps weren't enough, we go all the way to hand sanitizers, aloe, with all sorts of different kinds of smells from all different kinds of companies. We gotta get clean. We even buy it by the half gallon. So if all the soaps and the smells and the stuff that we buy on aisles weren't enough for us, we would even buy colognes to smell like certain people. You can smell like Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift. How about smelling like Mariah Carey or Jennifer Aniston? I mean, who wouldn't want to smell like Usher? Not quite sure how it smells, but how about being a legendary basketball player scent? I mean, even Tim McGraw's got three different smells. You can have a southern blend or original or even spicy. We have all these products to get clean on the outside, but what does it really look like to get clean on the inside? What does it really look like to get clean on the inside? I mean, most of us, we fully understand on a daily routine what it looks like to to deal with the outward appearance or the outward cleanliness of our lives and and of our bodies. But this morning, I want to take a glimpse at a, a New Testament individual that spoke very specifically on this topic about what it looked like to be clean. And this morning, I want to invite you to look at God's Word and to an individual that we know as John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was an individual that had a very specific task and a very specific calling on his life. And it was one that was separated and set apart to set the way or to pave the way or declare the way of the coming king. And his role and his, and his voice at this time was to prepare the way of what Jesus Christ was going to come and do on behalf of God's creation and bringing forgiveness of sin through salvation. And John the Baptist was a messenger, and as he, as he spoke on behalf of what the coming king was going to be about, he spoke specifically about what it meant to deal with the forgiveness of our sins. You know, what it meant to, to come out and confess sin and deal with it to the point that he moved into the second phase of even looking at what it meant to be washed in the waters of baptism. What does it mean for us to really look at dealing with our sin? 
I mean, who doesn't like to be clean? I mean, really, think about it. Who doesn't like to deal with that American ritual of purification and that ritualistic practice of each and every day, getting in the shower? And some of you may wash your hair once, maybe even some of you twice. You know you're getting old when you can't remember what you did in the shower? You're like, have I, have I washed my hair yet? Oh, I'll just do it again. You know, and, and we do this on such a regular basis that it almost becomes, maybe for some of us, non-essential. It just, it's just part of what I do. But John the Baptist was speaking of something so specific that it was a calling to come forth and deal with the sin that had begun to enwrap and engulf a culture. But point number one that I want to point out to you this morning is that in order for someone to get clean, they first have to recognize they're dirty. When you first look at that, that seems like a pretty simplistic principle, right? Well, I've got some boys at home that they can be running around the house like Pigpen from the Peanuts characters. And they can have this cloud of dust around them running around the house. And I can be saying, hey, guys, we're going to take baths or get in the shower. And, you know, to me, when I see them and their expression toward me when I'm asking for a bath is almost like them hearing the teacher on Peanuts going, wah, 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 wah. You know, it's like, get in the bath. You're dirty. So what, Dad? For some of us, we would think that that's a pretty simple principle. But how many of us really... When we're dealing with something in the depths of our lives, we don't feel the need to deal with it, to address it, to to get clean. And it sounds so simple, but yet the Bible, even in the Old and the New Testament, deal with this principle of dealing with the clean and the unclean. And the Bible's focus is not just on the cleanliness of the skin, but a cleanliness of the inner heart that we see in the book of Psalm, chapter 51, verses 10 through 12. And here in verse 10, it says, Create in me a pure heart, or maybe your translation says, A clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, and do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And it's not just a cleanliness of the flesh, but even a cleanliness of the inner spirit that we see in the book of Matthew in chapter 15, verse 7 and 8. That says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. It's not just simply about the outer body that Scripture parts, but it actually gets even to the inner soul that we see in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 and 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within that defile the man. And John the Baptist was enormously concerned about people finding what it meant to be clean, what it meant to step out and and address the things that had so enslaved them and finding forgiveness and freedom. This morning, I want to invite you to see a, a very specific picture of John the Baptist that we find painted for us in the book of Matthew. And here in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You know, just a, an average Joe, guy next door, right? Yeah. Then, Jeru- then in verse 5, Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district of the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sin. Now, why was this his message? I mean, John the Baptist could have come forth and he could have been talking about this great prophet that was on the horizon, and this great teacher, someone that would be coming to do miraculous signs and wonders and, and miracles and where he would heal some and he would allow the lame to walk again and he would deliver some from evil spirits and he would do all these marvelous things, but the confession of sin, the need for forgiveness, why was that his message? Because he understood then, like we do today, that that was the greatest need man would ever know. Our greatest need has always been the forgiveness of sins. And as John proclaimed this need and John proclaimed this message, he began to understand that I do today what number two, the point I want to make this morning is, is that dirt has a way of getting into the deepest parts of our life. Dirt has a way of getting into the deepest parts of our life. And, you know, for some of us, you could look at this even on the outside that is, A couple of weeks ago, we had an opportunity to do the mud run here at CSU Pueblo. And after the mud run, I I was covered from head to toe. And when I went to my car, I had to change my shirt and I put a towel down in the seat of my Jeep. And I got in and when I got home, I realized I still had mud all over the console. I still had it on the seat. I had it on the door. And I got out and I began to look at, man, it's just dirt everywhere. And I walk up to our garage door and I realize... I probably need to leave some of these clothes outside or I'm going to be finding somewhere else to sleep tonight. And, and I got my clothes off of the door, but when I got in the shower and I began to, to rinse off, I realized that in my eyelids, in the wrinkles, there was mud there that felt like shades on the window going up and down as the dirt came off. And I had to get a Q-tip, and in my ear, as I began to get in there, I was like, man, I want like four Q-tips. It's on my brain, you know? And then I blew my nose. And <laughs> it sounds gross. But I I mean, I had mud in my sinus cavities and I was just blowing it and I just had mud in all of these different places that I couldn't imagine. How does mud get there? But it's no different that John the Baptist spoke to the fact that the dirt and the sin and the realities of their life had gotten into places that they didn't even realize. That their culture had been so infected by the cultural waters they drank to the cultural air they breathed, everything within their culture had been so contaminated and so corroded that it was affecting their lives, their marriages, their homes, their children, their entire culture to the point that even religious practices were totally contaminated. And John the Baptist was speaking out toward this as he understood that dirt would find its ways and subtle influences into their lives, into their minds, into their hearts. And see, for many of us today, it's not this direct frontal assault to our our morals or our core values or, or to our practices as Christian believers. Those aren't the things we really wrestle with. Because see, like, for you and I, I don't know about you, but if I were to go to Loaf and Jug tonight and grab a sandwich and get some gas on my way out, if I was approached, you know, the guy, hey, 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 you, you want some crack cocaine? I don't need to make a pros and cons list about this moment. On one hand, hey, I may get a lot of work done tonight. On the other hand, I could lose my job, my marriage, my home, my reputation, everything that's important to me. I don't have to look at this moment as a critical decision-making process, but what 
I do have to realize are those morally neutral things that I wrestle with day in and day out. For me, it's like sports. You see, I have to be careful because if I begin to care too much, I begin to realize that my infatuation with sports and athletics can take a place in my life that supersedes my relationship with my king. Entertainment. A relaxation to the point it begins to produce a laziness in my life and the way I approach my job, my marriage, or my family. My schedule. That a lot of times I'll choose to look at my schedule and make commitments that are really hard or, or even difficult or impossible for me to keep, but I continue to keep heaping things on things on things on things to the point I have a hard time keeping my word. Other things like for me, eating. I like to eat. You know, I, the Faithfully Fit class really wasn't for me, and Pastor Charlie started his Carbs for Christ, and I got kicked out of that, so I started my own personal one that no one else could join called Faithfully Fat. <laughs> and, and for me, I like my private cup because nobody else eats my food. <laughs> and there are things that are subtle, and there are things that for many of us are very simple and, and almost at times just quietly seducing us that we begin to embrace to the point we forget that even in our entertainment or other things we choose to engage in, that something at one point in our life we may have found repulsive to the point we now find it a little humorous, to the point we begin to, to laugh at, to the point we begin to embrace in our living rooms, in our homes, in our lives, that we forget to realize it's the very thing Christ came to deliver us from. It's the very thing that he died on a cross from to be able to say, you no longer have to be enslaved and in bondage over those kind of things that we've begun to let creep in. In the same kind of audience that John the Baptist dealt with. Be free from that. Christ came to deliver you. He died for that. And in point number three this morning, I think it's important for us to realize as we understand and we pursue our king that real cleaning, real cleaning doesn't often feel good. Real cleaning doesn't often feel good. And this morning, I want to take you back into the Old Testament to a passage that I believe speaks not just to the message of John the Baptist, but also to the purpose and point that Jesus Christ would make in your life, my life, and the life of those that John was speaking to. That in the book of Malachi this morning in chapter 3, I want you to begin with me in verse 1. It says, For behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier over silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now you have to understand the audience here in the book of Malachi, if you were to take this book, you could read it from beginning to end fairly quickly, but in this it points out very specific realities to the audience of who Malachi is writing to. We understand it's a people coming out of exile. Uh, we understand that they're almost hiding in this rebuilt temple and, and their worship has become now almost so profane that it doesn't really even look like worship anymore. And, and in, their, in their pursuit of who they think is God, they begin to take their, their ritualistic or religious practices and make it for profit and for gain. 
They begin as priests to see what once was good is now evil, and evil is now good, and they begin to look at their worship in ways that has very little meaning. And there are people in Judah that profane the sanctuary of the Lord. They begin to marry outside the called people of Jesus, or out of called people of Israel. And we see in this moment that who Malachi is speaking to is a people that have really missed out on what God had intended for his people. Even in their worship, Malachi goes as far as to say in chapter 3, verse 14, that their worship began to be so denigrated. At the one point, the prophet pleads that someone would shut the temple doors in chapter 1, verse 10, understanding that no worship is better than worship that's done in vain. And as Malachi begins to write these words, that he comes to chapter 3 and he begins to, he begins to define and characterize with these metaphors what this great and glorious God had a desire to do. And throughout the book, we see in chapter 1 and a number of verses that it's a big God. It's a God that he even says is great enough to go beyond the borders of Israel in chapter 1, verse 5. That his name from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun is great in chapter 1, verse 11. And it says this great king, the king of the nations in 114. That there's a father, a creator of all in chapter 2, 10. Malachi's point was saying that, hey, if you're going to choose to, to, to deal with this great and glorious God, remember that he's also an angry and jealous God and desires for his people to deal with the impurities that are deep within. And Malachi is calling them back to a place of repentance, and he's dealing something here in chapter 3 that I believe is so important for us to understand how he characterizes the way our God deals with us even now. Look with me, if you would, again, back there at that passage. If you could, put up verse 2 for me again. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? It's both a glorious day, but also a fearful day, because it says, And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. A fuller's soap, in some of your translations, may uh, it's really kind of an anemic translation. When you go back and you look at even the Jerusalem Bible, you look at some others, it goes as far as to calling it a fuller's alkaline. The kind of soap that a blacksmith would use to get that dark grease and grime and, and soot out of their hands, that it would go beyond our Olay soft soap for soft-skinned people. You know, it's something that would get deep into the realities of the dirt that would cover them. A fuller's soap. Kind of like a borax kind of soap. This this reminds me, when I was a kid, uh, about five or six years of age, my parents, uh, I was the youngest of four, my parents took us down to see my grandparents in South Texas, and uh, we were there with some of my nieces and nephews, and uh, kind of a family reunion kind of thing, and my grandfather wasn't the most patient man. And I remember one night as the sun was setting, and we were all getting kind of loud, he made all the grandkids go outside and play out there, and as the youngest of the group, I just kind of fell in place with whatever they were doing. And a game picks up, and I'm at the back of the line, and they're running through the swing set. So we're all running through the swing set. And they're coming down the slide. I'm coming down the slide. They're touching tree branches. I'm touching tree branches. And I see out in front of about 14 of us, someone decides to jump. The next person jumps. The next person jumps. And by the time I get to wherever they're jumping, I'm kind of done with the game. But what I didn't realize is that Septic tanks look a little different back in that day. Oh, you don't know the half of it. And, 
And in this moment, I didn't realize they were jumping for the sake of jumping, that they were jumping over something. Because see, back then it looks different than if you were to go to my house and you see a pipe in the back that's kind of a little clean out. Granddad and Granny had this bathtub in the back of their yard. And in the top of it had this dross and moss and junk over the top to where all it was was an open tub of filth. And as they jumped over it, I failed to jump and head first into the septic tank. And as I come up out of that tank, I take a breath that I regretted taking and, and I'm sitting here crying and I'm trying to get out, but I'm so slippery I can't even get out of the tub and all the kids are laughing at me. Then they start screaming for mom and granny and man, granny takes me to the back porch. She makes me take off all my clothes and get everything off there and she takes me into the, the bath where she had already run a bath and she puts me in the, in the bathtub and she sets me down and, and says, Corey, you, you don't get up until I come back. A few minutes later, she comes back into the bathroom, and she has this bar of lye soap. Oh, yeah, some of you know. And she hands me that bar of lye soap, and I have to start scrubbing. And at first, no big deal until I realize that that lye soap starts to just begin to burn. And it begins to almost take off the skin, and she's sitting there saying, keep going, keep going. And I have to scrub from head to toe and to the point where I'm almost in tears because that soap is, is digging down into every aspect of my skin to the point it's painful and it hurts, but it served a purpose of getting me clean. And that's what John the Baptist was all about, that he reminded us that we have this sin that's deep within, that if we don't deal with it and we don't address it and come to a place of being washed clean by the forgiveness, the blood of Jesus Christ, It'll continue to hold us in places of bondage and darkness and the depths of things that hurt and produce loneliness and anger and bitterness and resentment. That John the Baptist was saying, hey, he's come that you can move beyond that. He's coming for a purpose that will bring freedom from that. But number four, I want to point out that deep cleaning often gets hotter than we think we can handle. He talks about it in verse 2 here as a refiner's fire. Now, when I was a kid, when we would go camping or we'd have a bonfire or a cookout outside, and we would used to have hot dogs that we would roast in the fire. It's not like now. I've been to some places with folks, and they have like these Coleman hot dog things that have the little prong on the ear and a nice little plastic handle, and you can hold them out there. When I was a kid, we had coat hangers. You know, and we'd go get a wire coat hanger, and we would untwist it, which would take us longer than actually cooking the hot dog, and we'd be pulling away at it, and we'd get it out, and we'd put a hot dog on it and stick it in the fire. And the next morning or next day, we'd realize that when we grabbed those hangers again to, to cook again with, we'd realize that there would be all this junk on the end of the coat hanger. Now, we didn't just stick a hot dog on there. What did we do? No, we didn't clean it. We just stuck it in the fire. And when you'd stick in the fire, you could begin to realize they would get so hot that the end of that coat hanger would almost begin to turn red and you'd see smoke coming off of it. It'd almost smell bad because it was burning off all the junk that had, and residue that had uh, accumulated there to the point we'd just pull it out, be red hot, blow on it, stick the hot dog on there, put it back in the fire. But you know, there's a lot of times in our life, I think that we go through this purification process that gets so hot it becomes uncomfortable for us to the point we almost don't want to stay there and we want to get out of what God's doing in our life because it's uncomfortable. That I want you to see his involvement in that process, though. See, as you continue to read into verse 3, look at it real quick. If you could put that up there for me. Here in verse 3, he points out a personal 
a personal influence in this process that I'm going to read. It says, He will sit as a smelter, as a purifier of silver. He will sit. We see in Scripture that there are a number of times he gives, gives charge to the angels to deal with things in the life of his people. But in the process of purification, in the process of redemption, justification, sanctification, this is something that he takes a very personal interest in. That he doesn't give charge of this to anybody else. That he as our creator, as our Lord, as our king, takes a personal place in the purifi purification process of his people. And it says he... He will what? He will sit as a smelter, as a purifier. Now, at first glance, to think that somebody just sits down at a job would communicate an indifference or an uncaring attitude, but I believe it's just the opposite. I see our, our purifier, our king, our savior, realizing that this process in our life is one that he takes great care in, and that it's a slow process and it's an intentional process, that he sits down with a patience in working in the life of his people. And that he's intentional in being part of this to the point that you and I can take great joy in knowing, in knowing that he is intimately involved. But here's the thing. He talks about it as a refiner's fire, and as he's intentional in this process, he points to it actually in the process of gold and silver. If you've ever spoken with a silversmith or someone that works with precious metals, as they sit at the heat of this fire and they have this precious metal, they will begin to draw the dross off the top of it. And they'll tell you that the moment they know it's pure is when the one that's doing the purifying can look down into that metal and see their image. I think the same looks for you and I in our relationship with our King, that as He's purifying us, He's purifying us for the purpose of Him being able to look into our lives and see His image. He's intentional with it. But number five, I believe cleaning is only complete once the impurity is completely removed. He talks about here in verse three and four about how He will purify, how He will purify the sons of Levi. Those are the priests that we see in chapter 2 of Malachi when he spoke out against the corruption of the priesthood. The Messiah will purify the sons of Levi. And if you define the word purify, you see it as something that's being free from anything that debases or pollutes, adulterates, or contaminates. Something that's preventing something from doing what it was designed to do. And it takes me back to college. Let's see, my first car I got when I was a junior in college that... It was the car my dad had had for a long time. And it was a baby blue El Camino. Not a truck and not a car. And baby blue. You know? And, and if you're wondering for the younger audience, it was a 78 El Camino, which meant it wasn't new, okay, to me. And so it had a lot of issues. It had a lot of problems. And early on, I realized if I don't find a good mechanic, this car is going to cost me a lot of money. And I found a guy that went by the name of Bear. And he was a behemoth of a man. He looked a lot like Grizzly Adams. And then you know you're old when half your audience has no idea who that is. Okay? 
Big beard, big man. He could fit on Duck Dynasty, okay? It, maybe that'll help you. And, and his name was Bear. And I remember coming out of work one afternoon, and I called up Bear. I said, man, Bear, my, my car won't start. And I don't know what's wrong with it. And he said, hey, if you can give me a few minutes, I'll be there. And Bear comes down to the mall where I was working, and he gets out, and he opens up the hood, and he looks in there and he goes, hey, Corey, I'll be back in a few minutes. And he runs over to the convenience store and comes back, and he has a two-liter bottle of Coke in his hand. And as he opens up the, the hood of my car, he begins to pour this Coke all over my battery. And as I saw on the battery, these cables that had connected to my battery and on the post had so corroded that the, the, the corrosion around it had grown over the top to where you couldn't even see the connections anymore. And as he poured this Coke on it, it began to eat away at that stuff that had corroded around the cables to the point it just began to almost fall off. And I sat back thinking, and I drink that stuff. <laughs> and pretty soon... It had all fallen off, and he says, hey, get back in the car and try it out. And, you know, with that car, nothing happened ever immediately. So I had to crank it a couple of times, and in a few times, it turned over, and the car started up again. And I was like, man, thanks, Bear. I appreciate that. But it, it makes me wonder, how many of us live our life asking the question, why is there no more power in my Christian walk? Why is there no more joy that I experienced like I used to when I met Jesus? Why is there no more peace and why is there no more joy? Why is there no more contentment that I used to know when I first came to know Jesus Christ? And it begs the question that if there's impurities and corrosion and contamination in our life that has begun to bring and produce separation between us and our God, that he is working diligently to come alongside of us and, and bring a purifying fire and to bring a fuller soap to cleanse us of those things. But it gets back to point two or point one. Do we really want to be clean? It's a simple question, but it's a question we have to wrestle with and asking, do I really want to give him enough authority in my life to bring this cleansing power and to bring this forgiveness that can only be ushered in through his grace and his mercy that he gave to us the day his son died on the cross? Do we want to be clean? Because God always sends messengers to surround us. And maybe for you, it's one of your pastors, or it's a co-worker, it's a teacher, a boss, a spouse, a, a family member. God always surrounds us with messengers that speak into our life. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, do we want to listen? Do, do we really want to listen? But tonight, or this morning, you may be asking, Corey, you know, I've been a believer for a long time, but what do I do with that? You know, what does this really look like for me? Scripture speaks to the, the how, the what. We almost become violent to the thoughts and the things of our life as we come to a place that Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He became our intercessor. He's praying for me that he continues to take this personal investment of the personal work that he's doing in my life. And for many of us, it moves beyond just this head knowledge or this understanding that there's a God because, folks, hear me, a head knowledge without a relationship with the king is like owning a car that has no fuel. It may look pretty, but it serves no purpose. And within the life and relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, and in that moment, in that point that we come to a place of knowing that without this forgiveness and without this, this understanding of the joy and the hope and the salvation that Jesus came to give, I'll continue to live in the same bondage that this world has never been able to speak to. 
that I'll continue to wrestle with the same void that's been there for so long. There's a renewal of our mind that takes place. It's a renewal that takes place in that relationship, and it, and it looks like what I call a, dis, uh, a, a um, disciplined delight. A disciplined delight. What I mean by that is what stirs your affections for your God? Uh, what stirs your affections for Christ in your life? For me, it's life journaling. I know many of you may, t- may practice that in the life of your daily routine, but for me, it's being able to, to get into God's Word and seeing how His Word for me today applies to what I'm dealing with and allowing it to speak to me in ways that are very personal in the relationship I have with my King. Uh, but for you, it could look like a number of different things as you pursue Him to know Him more, but what is your discipline delight? What are you doing to feel and stir the affections of Christ? Because see, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It comes down to understanding how do I starve out those things that rob me from the joy of my King? How do I begin to address those things with such an intentionality that it begins to rob and starve out those things that have taken my affection for Christ? There's a message that I've preached a number of years and a number of times before that to talk about a process that I think Scripture reveals time and time again that it comes to the point in our spiritual journey where we begin to recognize the lies of our enemy because he's good at it. And we recognize those lies and we take another step in the process and we replace it with God's truth and his word. And then we repeat the process. That I'm constantly recognizing the lies of my enemy and I'm choosing to address them with the truth of God's word and I continue to repeat that process. And that process goes on and on and on as I fix my eyes on Jesus and I choose to dwell on the things that are of good repute, that are honorable, that are pure, that are lovely. This played out for me as... One day I'm in the living room and I'm switching through some channels and there's a TV show that comes on and I catch it every now and then. It's, I, I find it kind of humorous, but it's called When Animals Attack. Good, three of us have seen it. And so, <laughs> When Animals Attack, in this particular episode, it was, it was, okay, so you'll get a picture of me here of this. I found it a little humorous that they walk in this 1,500-pound male lion and they sit him down on the studio floor. And then they bring in this little girl that she's got a little bikini on and she's got a bottle of shampoo. And they sit her in front of this 1,500-pound lion. And she holds up the bottle of shampoo and they begin to snap pictures and begin to film. And all of a sudden, the lion turns and begins to attack not just the little girl but other people in the crew. And at this point in time, I'm sitting back saying to myself, it's a 1,500-pound lion. And the trainer they begin to interview right after this moment where they use the serious voice and the screen goes dark and blah, you know. And, and the trainer comes up and he says, I don't understand. This is such a gentle creature. It's an apex predator. A, a lion was created with fangs and claws and put on a continent and told to go eat. <laughs> Lions hunt animals. There's no animal that hunts a lion. And they place a piece of meets in front of this lion and, and it turns and everybody's like oh oh if you put a plate of fajitas on this stage <laughs> now I may not eat them right now I may even go later in the afternoon but at some point today those are mine 
You know, because a lion's going to do what a lion does. Folks, let me tell you, sin's going to do what sin does. And at some point in our journey, our sin is going to turn on us and it's going to do something in our life as it begins to corrode and contaminate the way we see things and the way we see our God, the way we understand His forgiveness, the way we understand His mercy and His grace. And we begin to skew things in the way we see the world around us. And we come to a point where we honestly believe, God, when did you stop loving me? And He said, I never did. I'm sitting right here as your refiner's fire. I'm right here in the process of loving you intently. I'm right here in the process of desiring deep and intimate relationship with you. But you have to recognize at some points, this process of purification doesn't feel good. And sometimes it costs us more than we want to give. And he's saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, We demolish the arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That he's saying there's a part in this process that you have a control over, you have a choice in, that if you'll take these thoughts captive, you'll begin to see just how much I love you. Just how much I've done on your behalf to communicate what genuine grace and mercy and love looks like. But we choose to take every thought captive. What does that look like this morning for you? Maybe someone's here today and you're like, Corey, I, I have no idea what you're talking about in this, this forgiveness, this, this relationship with Jesus Christ. This morning, I just want to let you know that you don't have to leave this place in the same bondage you walked in with. That you have an opportunity here this morning to simply just explore and experience what it is to know Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. In just a moment as we pray, we're going to have some prayer partners come here to the front. and There will be people here in the front waiting for you to be able to come forward so they can share with you what it looks like to know Jesus Christ personally here today for them to talk to you about what it means to, to not just simply confess the realities of your life and confess the sin that has wrapped, wrapped yourself in, uh, in bondage with, but for you to be able to recognize freedom and joy. Maybe you're saying, Brother Corey, you, I've been a believer for a long time. And I got my stuff. I'm proud of it, and I've, I've wrestled with it for a long time. You don't have to wrestle with it anymore. And maybe this morning it's just a matter of you stepping out and making your way forward and maybe not even to a prayer partner, but just simply kneeling at an altar and spending some time right now with your Creator and with your King and just saying, here I am, Lord. I can't do this anymore. I'm yours. Whatever it is you're wrestling with here today, you don't have to. Pray with me.